Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Harold McGee will join us to discuss Nosedive. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Well, the world of smells is almost everything to us until we lose it. What is it about the science of smells? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Harold McGee. Dr. McGee writes about the science of food and cooking and is the author of award-winning classics such as On Food and Cooking, The Science and Lore of the Kitchen, and Keys to Good Cooking, A Guide to Making the Best of Foods and Recipes. He's a former columnist for the New York Times and a named Best Food Writer of the Year by Bon Appetit magazine. Since 2010, he has been a visiting lecturer for Harvard University's course Science and Cooking, From Hot Cuisine to Soft Matter Science, and penned the new book, Nose Dive. A Field Guide to the World's Smells. Dr. McGee, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. My pleasure. It's really a fascinating book. You dive into the science of smells. What compelled you to write the book? (laughs) Well, my usual beat is the science of food and cooking. And flavor is such an important aspect of food. It's what gives us much of the pleasure in eating. So I wanted to write a book about flavor to begin with. And I thought I knew the subject pretty well, so I could uh, knock out a book like that in a couple of years. Well, I got sidetracked and it ended up taking 10 because I became interested in the question why it is that the smells of foods, the aromas of foods can echo not only each other, cheese can smell like a tropical fruit sometimes, but then why it is that foods echo other things in the world that aren't particularly edible. And so I asked the question, why do the things in the world have the smells that they do? And that turned out to be a big question and a wonderful one. It took me 10 years, but I loved every minute. As smells, the products that produce them, and of course, our own biology, which allows us to detect those smells. That's right. And in fact, that's so interesting that I ended up deciding to limit the book, long as it is, only to what's out there, to the molecules that stimulate the sense of smell. Our perception of smells is a fascinating subject. We have only really been learning about it for the last 10 or 20 years. So fascinating that I thought I couldn't deal with that and the smells themselves at the same time in the same book. So maybe another book, but this book is mainly about what's out there to be enjoyed. Much has been made about the interactions of smell and taste. Sometimes smell being seems even more important than stuff that hits our tongue. That's right. In fact, flavor is really a combined perception that's made up of several different senses of ours. Taste, of course, on the tongue, sweet, sour, salty, bitter, just a handful of sensations. There's also texture, which some people include in flavor. But the most important aspect is smell, because we can detect many, many more smells than we can tastes. That's a matter of dispute. It might be thousands, it might be thousands of thousands, but in any case, it's smell that gives us the wonderful variety of flavors in the foods. 
And looking at all the different types of chemicals that are out there, are there any commonalities that distinguish what is produced to make these smells? Well, most smells in the natural world, in our world, are coming from living things. And living things are built up essentially out of three, four, or five elements. But carbon is the most important of them. Carbon is this uh, wonderfully versatile element that can combine with itself and with many other atoms to, uh, to generate diversity of all kinds. And so most smells are carbon molecules. They're small chains, they're small rings. Smallness is important because they all have to be volatile. That is to say, they have to be small enough that they can be emitted from the things around us, fly through the air and into our noses as we breathe in and then be detected by our uh, olfactory receptors. Evolve to, of course, put out that signal or is it just sort of happenstance in, in some cases? Well, it's different stories in, in different situations. So in the case of living things, there are two kind of generalizations you can make. One is that all living things emit volatile molecules and therefore smells when they're decaying because their large molecules break down into smaller ones and uh, those smaller ones are small enough for us to detect. So there are those smells. Then there are the very different smells that are made intentionally by living things in order to communicate with each other. And here the real masters are the members of the plant kingdom, which in herbs and spices and flowers and fruits give us the wonderful range of pleasures that we can take in, in smell. Is it important that these smells exist? Would we have cuisine without these smells? <laughs> That's a, actually a great question. I, I had never asked myself that question. I, I think we would have cuisine because cooking is important purely on a nutritional level. You know, uh, the invention of cooking made the nutrients in food more available to us than they uh, are in the, in the raw material. And so it's thought that that's help, what helped fuel the, the growth of the human brain and eventually led to culture and the world we have now. But I would say that certainly that fueling would be much less enjoyable, much less pleasurable without the sense of smell. And we probably would not have restaurants and cooking shows and things like that because it simply wouldn't be as interesting. Is it sometimes difficult to convey those aspects of smell without actually smelling the smell? It really is. You know, it's, it's hard to put words to smells. And the, the words will only make sense to other people who've had the same experience because we recognize smells by having smelled them before in particular things. So we associate smells with the things that emit them. And if we ha have had different experiences or have not had the experience of a particular thing, then we have no idea how to describe it. Sometimes the same smell can evoke different reactions uh, in different people. That's right, because smell is something that we perceive. You know, we have a, a sense, these olfactory receptors that do send information to the brain, but then what the brain does with that information is completely subjective, you know, depends on our personal databases of past experiences and preferences and dislikes and so on. And so uh, our, our responses to the same smell can be very different person to person. The chemicals, the smells they combine, they, they kind of produce sometimes things that are very different from their individual components as well. 
uh, that's something that is good for people who are interested in exploring smells to realize is that, um, you know, we think of, for example, the smell of parsley as parsley smell. But in fact, parsley smell is made up of components smells. And so smells are really more like chords in music. They're, they're made up of individual notes. Those notes combine sometimes, obviously, to give an overall additive smell. But sometimes the combination just isn't recognizable. The, the notes aren't recognizable in it. If you think of the example, for, uh, for example, of something like Coca-Cola or a curry powder, those are formulated from individual ingredients that overall give an impression that we think of as cola flavor or curry flavor, but bear little resemblance to the individual components. In researching this book, I mean, you've certainly found a lot of different smells. I mean, what, what was the most surprising discovery you found in your investigation of it? Ah, that's, that's a tough one because I was su surprised all the time. But I guess one of them would be that if you get interested in smells for their own sake, rather than just deciding, you know, that you like something or don't like something, but you're just interested in exploring more, then you end up being able to like things that you might have thought would be impossible to like. So I, I did go around smelling things that a lot of people find not very pleasant, like, uh, you know, fermented herring in Scandinavia and durian fruit in Southeast Asia. I ended up initially being kind of put off by their strong, sometimes overly fishy, sometimes overly skunky smells. But as I ate more and more of them, you know, trying to pick out those individual notes that I was talking about, I kind of came to enjoy them. So I think repeated experience of things and taking an interest in them for their own sake can just bring a lot more pleasure to my life anyway that, than, than I'd expected. What about the, the natural history of some of these smells, certainly the evolution of how some of these chemicals are produced? That's right. Uh, and that was a, a big part of the fun of writing this book, was reading in the scientific literatures of, of many different fields and seeing how each of them brought a different perspective to them. So in the case, for example, of food and drink and plants, herbs and spices, it turns out that most of the aromas that we enjoy in herbs and spices and cultivate them for are uh, a form of chem chemical warfare. They're there in those plants to protect the plants against predators that would otherwise chomp on them because, you know, they're, they're stuck in the ground. They can't run away. So they defend themselves with chemicals. Those same chemicals that are meant to repel many predators are exactly what appeal to us, and so we cultivate them. So even though the, the chemicals aren't doing what the plant originally intended for them to do in our case, they end up having the same effect because we value them and cultivate them for that reason. You've certainly had a past history of being interested, quite interested in literature. So much being described by authors in literature often revolves around these things of smell and taste about the, the world to evoke an emotion. That's right. In fact, way, way back before I was writing about food, I was writing about the English poet John Keats. And uh, he was a real lover of the world of the senses in general, but smells and tastes in particular. And his poetry is filled with images 
metaphors that have to do with taste and smell. Uh, one of my favorite poems of his, which is I've been reading recently because it's that season, is a, a poem called To Autumn, in which he describes the very distinctive smells of this time of year when, you know, the fruits are ripe and people are making cider from the ripe apples and leaves are falling from the tree and the season as a whole has a smell coming from all these different components of it. So it's a, a, a rich source for poets as well as scientists. It's certainly one of those senses that we don't notice until we lose it. And of course, in these days and times, COVID patients, one of the, the most common things is that they, they kind of lose their sense of smell. That How does it sort of affect our experience of the world? Yeah, COVID uh, can cause the loss of both taste and smell. And I think smell is probably the, the greater loss. I've actually experienced myself the loss of my sense of smell from other viruses. Once, actually, while I was writing this book, which was very scary. <laughs> and it, it really does make you realize when you lose it, how much you relied on it when you had it. Because, of course, there's the loss of pleasure in food and drink, but there's also just the loss of knowing what's going on, for example, when you're cooking. We judge whether things are done or maybe on the verge of being overdone by the way the, the kitchen smells. And if you don't have that clue as to what's going on, then um, things can get difficult and not so nice. So, yeah, it's, it's a difficult loss to, to deal with. And unfortunately, we still don't know how to bring it back, whether it's a, a more mundane viral infection or COVID. It's not something that's easy to deal with. What would you like people to take home regarding the world smells and, and your book, Nosedive? I would just love for them to realize that there's a whole world out there. I call it the osmocosm, the, the cosmos of smells. There's a lot out there to experience, to smell, maybe not necessarily to, to love, but at least to be interested in. And so the more you sniff around, the more you pay attention to smells, the more you'll know about the world, and I think the more pleasure you'll have in, in life. We were just talking with Dr. Harold McGee. He is the author of Nosedive, A Field Guide to the World's Smells. And Dr. McGee, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.